worthy tonight. Amen. What a mighty and wonderful God we serve. Amen. The Lord bless you. You may be seated in Jesus' name. Thank you to all who have, all, like Brother Trevor said, have already decided and can help for uh, Saturday to help with Brother uh, Manny and his family. I know we also have a training, so some of the men will be at that. Um, and if there's still something to do, we can go after. But um, if you can be a help of that, if you're not in that training and you can help even for just a couple hours, I'm sure the, the Rojo family would appreciate that. Amen. Also tonight, if I could get some help from the men, uh, we've got to empty some uh, items out of Brother Sal's office. We're going to be laying a floor in there tomorrow. And so just get some help with that to move the desks and stuff out into the hall. I'd appreciate that. So we'll do that after service. Amen. Praise God. Well, I hope you're having a wonderful Valentine's Day. Amen. Isn't it great? Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it wonderful? Hallelujah. Um, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our children and our students. God bless all of them and our staff and excited for what God's going to do there tonight. And then, of course, here in the sanctuary, continuing our series on reaffirming the fundamentals and looking forward to the ministration of the Holy Ghost tonight. Amen. I'm going to ask you to join me in the book of Acts chapter 6. And uh, as they've already put up my screen, my title is Multiplied Increase Tonight. Donnie, I'm going to tell you now before I forget, there's three lights that aren't on. I don't know if it's the switch or what, but we can figure that out maybe later. Um, just want to let you know, just so I don't forget, you know. My brain works weird like that sometimes. Acts chapter 6. And we'll begin reading at verse number 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples to them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. <clears throat> the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And again, my title tonight is Multiplied Increase. Let's pray together. Jesus, <clears throat> thank you for your church. Thank you that you are the Lord of this church. You are the head of this body. Lord, you and your word alone is able to save, deliver, and heal, and it is appointed and anointed for this moment. So cause my tongue to be the pen of a ready writer that you might write your word upon our hearts. Let there be a demonstration of your spirit and power and confirm your word with signs following. And we ask it in the name of Jesus that I would walk in your spirit and not in my flesh. And everyone said amen. Praise the Lord. Um. I did a basic online 
search and found a website in preparation for this message that heralded the top 50 books to read on church growth. I have read some of them that was in that list, as well as others um, that were not included in that list. And I've read books about church growth from even some of our own apostolic authors. But the one thing all these books have in common, no matter if they were written in the 70s or last year, um, the fact is all of these books, at least they should anyway, <clears throat> base their church growth model on Scripture, and rightly they should. Church growth is essential. Amen. Now, that's maturity, church growth. We should mature in Christ. That's an element of church growth. But the number of saints and disciple makers should also increase. That's essential. That's God's desire and design for His church. He never intended for His church to be a flash in the pan. From before the foundation of the world, God's purpose was for His church to experience multiplied increase throughout every century, continent, community, and culture. God wants to prosper His church daily, not just for a couple of hours on Sunday in a midweek service. To that point, Acts 2.46, the church continued daily. The next verse, verse 47, God added to the church daily. It's part of the reason for our theme this year, daily. And the point is, when we do our part, God does His part. But it doesn't stop with Acts 2. In Acts 5 and verse 42, the church unceasingly prayed and preached Jesus Christ, the Bible says, daily in the temple and in every house. In other words, every born-again believer had a house church going on. A group Bible study, we might call it a preaching point or a small group or a connect group. Wow, that's church growth. In Acts 16 verse 5, we see that more churches were established and increased in number daily. In Acts 17 11, the believers there in Thessalon, or, um, Berea searched the Scriptures daily. In Acts 17, 17 and also 19 verses 9 and 10 and verse 20, Paul and those who were with him preached the Word of God daily. In other words, if you would go to a first century believer and say, where do you go to church? They would say, huh? We are the church. Our culture is, well, I go to this church, I go to that church. And I understand what we mean, and I'm not dogging on that, but the fact is, God's intent is for us to be a daily church. Praying, studying, sharing the testimony of Jesus Christ with coworkers and neighbors and friends. It's a daily thing. But something special happened in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It's the first time in the book of Acts that Luke uses the word multiplied. And after this, he will use it three more times as he writes this uh, uh, book about the growth and the 
works of Jesus Christ and the acts of the apostles. It will illustrate God's desire for multiplied increase. In Acts 6 verse 7, he mentioned that the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. In Acts 9 verse 31, they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost and were multiplied. In Acts 12 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. God doesn't just want to add to his church daily. God wants to do multiplication. You know, 10 plus 10 is 20. 10 times 10 is 100. God wants to do some multiplication. Hallelujah. He wants his church to grow and he wants his church to experience multiplied increased. And that's just as fundamental as the oneness of God, the new birth, holiness, and everything else that we've taught so far in this series. So what can we learn from the passage I read about multiplied increase? First of all, I want to talk about addressing a concern. Now, nobody raise your hand. Everybody just keep your hands down and, and keep your faces just solemn and sober. But have you ever had a concern about somebody in the church? Okay, again, keep your hands down. Okay, all the faces are, okay, good. Nobody's giving any looks away. Good, all right. Now, if I did ask you to raise your hand, probably all of you would. We've had concerns before. Let's look at verse 1 again. And in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied. So notice what is happening. Growth. Disciples are multiplying. They're not just called saints. They're not just called Christians. They're actually actively working and, and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. When this happened, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, let me just come out right out of the gate on this point and tell you this. Too often, we're listening to respond. We're waiting, and as soon as Jeff is done, I'm going to jump in and say, I didn't hear a thing Jeff said. I'm just waiting for him to stop so I can enter in the conversation. That's listening to respond. But if you listen to understand, that's the better way to communicate. Scripture does not indicate tone of voice or body language. But we can review the words in the verse to determine our best educated guess. And knowing that we also have similar things possibly that have happened, we can guess pretty good how it may have happened. The word murmuring in verse 1 means a secret displeasure not openly avowed. Vine's Expository Dictionary also adds this. It's of displeasure or complaining more privately than in public. And so on that, I want to start that when we see the word murmuring, we, we, you might want to jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, these, these, these Grecian widows were complaining, they were murmuring. And you think of the Old Testament murmuring and complaining that the, the uh, Israelites did in the wilderness. But it was a little bit different here. This word indicates that at least it was only among themselves and wasn't being made public. They weren't stopping coming to church over it. They weren't uh, going somewhere else over it. They weren't church hopping, if you will. They weren't uh, upset at, at the pastor necessarily. They were just, it was just something that was bothering them and it was starting to get to the place where they needed to deal with it. These Grecian widows, they were Greek, Grecian of course, they were Hellenist Jews. And they may have felt a degree of ethnic 
injustice, seeing that the Hebrew widows were getting better treatment than them. Does that sound familiar to our society today? Where one group feels marginalized and says the other group gets a, a better treatment? Now, whether or not this was actually true, their perception for them made it true to them. Now, I don't like perception because perception can be skewed by our feelings, by our agendas, by a host of other things. And so we have to be very careful with perception, but it is a reality, at least to the person who's feeling it. And if I'm listening to understand rather than listening to respond, I can better help you and vice versa. You could better help me if that were the case. By the, the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? So whenever you are considering a matter, and if you have a concern, make sure in doing it you're weighing out all of the variables and not just thinking with your emotional autonomic system and feelings because feelings are fickle. Now, notice also when the complaint arose, when church growth happened, the multiplied disciples, and all of a sudden, psh, it's now come to a head, and bam, we've got to deal with this. They complained as the momentum of multiplied increase began to take over the growth of the church. Now, I'm not attempting and I don't want to sound like I'm invalidating these Grecian widows or their complaint, but allow me to say this. Problems will always arise when the church starts growing. And some of them are legitimate problems that need to be handled. And some of them are the devil trying to raise his ugly head. And... and I, I'm not going to be one of those pastors that if you bring me a concern, it's always going to be spiritual and, and, and by golly, the devil is fighting. You know, sometimes you might have a legitimate concern and you know what? I'll listen to you as much as I can. Ask the Lord for wisdom and, and hear you out. If it is spiritual, however, I'm going to bring up that matter and say, hey, let's, let's realize that this is, you're, you're looking at that the wrong way. I had someone come to me Sunday about a situation, and when I told them otherwise, they're like, oh, I didn't know that. And immediately once they knew that, boom, conversation was over because now they realized they had more to the story. You see, Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And sometimes that's a three-pronged singular attack, and other times if one doesn't work, he'll try another one. Now again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that these Grecian widows were being used of the enemy or had impure motives or evil intent. But the fact, and, and, and the point of that is the fact is this, their complaint was addressed rather than them being rebuked, which tells me they had at least a point in the matter. Satan may have used their secret displeasure to try to hinder the multiplied increase. But it didn't work. So I want to just point out something. If, if you have something that's bothering you, I have an open door policy. And I know my wife says sometimes I can have a look on my face that sometimes looks, you know, mean. But I, I promise you I'm not. You can get some candy like the kids and we'll talk. Seriously. I, you know, I want to hear it. You know. 
I want to hear what your complaint is. So, but, but I want to give you a list of what I need you to do before you bring it to me. First of all, can you do this? Can you pray about it and ask the Lord to help your attitude? Is that okay? Because when you come to me, I'm going to, under my breath, start praying for wisdom. Okay? And depending on what the matter is, I'm definitely going to pray about it. Right? Number two, if it's about another person... Approach them first, because that's what the Bible teaches. And if for some reason it doesn't work out as, after you approach them, fine. Bring it to me at that point. Okay? But don't let it fester. And don't gossip. Gossip is a sin. Amen. Amen. Number three, allow me, or if it's Pastor Lucas, you know, one of the pastoral members, allow us the grace to hear your complaint. And then allow me the grace, or again, Pastor Lucas, to show you the whole picture. I want everybody to, to do me a favor here. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're in class for a minute. What is the focal point of any one of you right now? Can anybody help me out here? What's the focal point of any one of you sitting in the audience right now? The platform, the pulpit, the preacher, right? What's my focal point? Everyone. A lot of times when we look at an issue, we're looking at it from our perspective and we see just our piece of the, the puzzle, but God has gifted his pastoral team, his fivefold ministry, to see the whole picture. So allow all. I'm asking for you to allow the grace, allow me the grace to hear your complaint, but then when I begin to answer, allow me the grace to show you there's a bigger picture. I, I will not do it to invalidate your complaint or concern, but I will do it to most certainly tell you that there's more to the story. And then, number five, trust God's wisdom through me or the pastoral team to bring a solution. And on those five principles, I want you to consider the following. David Guzik says this, Satan loves to use an unintentional wrong to begin a conflict. The Hebrews were right in their hearts, and the Hellenists were right in their facts. These were perfect conditions for a church-splitting conflict. If you're right in your heart, and someone else is right in their facts, and you get those two factions going against each other, and it's not handled appropriately, there's going to be World War III. Jesus addresses this, and I've already alluded to it in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23. There, if you, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has ought against you, leave there your gift. Before the altar, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. His message correlates with what Samuel told Saul, that obedience is better than sacrifice. True worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus wants our sacrifice, but he wants us first to be reconciled and united together. Otherwise, our worship is just religious duty and not relationship. Now, nothing in Acts 6, nothing that we can read from even history about this event, suggests deliberate oversight by the apostles or the church. It could have been the result of an administrative error. It could have been the result of poor supervision. 
It could have been possibly not knowing the scope or amount of Grecian widows. And with the disciples multiplying greatly, they've got this thing that they're dealing with over here on their hands as well. And so, again, it was an unintentional wrong. But regardless of what we don't know, what is known is that the apostles listened to understand. They did not jump to conclusions. They did not defend themselves if they felt like it was an attack. There was, there's no sense in the word where they defended themselves and got angry. Instead, they listened to understand. And then, point number two, they advocated a solution. Let's go to verse two. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. I like those kind of business meetings when the saying pleases the whole multitude. Amen. I've heard about some pretty rank church stories where this faction's against that faction and this person's arguing against that person. And there's a story I like to tell where this church had raised some money because they wanted to do some upgrading and remodeling. <clears throat> so the pastor called the, the church together, got the business meeting in order, <clears throat> and he said, we've raised this money and there's a motion from sister so-and-so that we buy a nice chandelier and put it in the lobby. And this one old fellow in the back raised his hand, I'm against it, pastor. He said, okay, sir, why are you against it? He said, well, first of all, none of us know how to spell chandelier. Second of all, we need lights. <laughs> and if you're going to argue, at least know what you're arguing about, you know. Apparently, this man did not know what he was arguing for. I've seen some churches, but, but in this case, the business meeting, everybody was happy. Why were they happy? Because it was a spirit-led decision where validation was made to the Grecian widows, where reconciliation was made with the Hebrew widows, and everybody hugged and went home, and woohoo, we're having growth. The, the apostles also recognized the value of job descriptions, as well as the need for people to fulfill a purpose. They also recognized that there's only so many hours in the day and that they can only divide their time so, you know, much. So when they say in verse 2, it is no reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables, it wasn't against the Grecian widows. They weren't saying, we ain't going to do that job, we're not our job. It wasn't in that attitude. By the way, just so everybody knows, I am not a one-man band. Never want to be, never will be. I love teams, I love investing in others, pouring into others, and seeing them succeed just as much. Because when the team wins, we all win. Teamwork makes the dream work, hallelujah. I will equip and empower others to see. I have no problem running a vacuum cleaner. I have no problem picking up trash, uh, trash visiting those in need. But my main purpose and priority, if you want to know what my job description is as a bishop and pastor, it is, verse 4, to give myself continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word. I am most effective and efficient when I'm doing that. And that doesn't make me lazy. 
if somebody else vacuums or somebody else takes out the trash. Does that make sense? Okay. That's what Peter was saying here. That's what the apostles were saying here. And, and contextually, the role that these seven men fulfilled was actually not themselves waiting on the tables. But rather, it's most likely that they served by overseeing the distribution. There were funds coming in to help, and so they needed people to help oversee that and oversee the, the scheduling of that, who's, who's in charge today, who's taking the food today, etc. I'm not trying to be funny, but you know, the mills on wheels, who's, who's delivering today, they were probably overseeing that part of it. They may have done some of the visitation themselves, but their main role was to manage the operations. This meant possibly that others were already serving and that it probably the complaint was due to potentially poor supervision. So these seven men became a part of the dream team and were selected with three main requirements. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to I go back to verse 4. There was a young man who approached a pastor and he said, I would give the world to be able to teach the Bible like you, pastor. Pastor looked him straight in the eye and said, good, because that's what it's going to cost you. Amen. I've been preaching since 1987. You do the math. I've been preaching that long. I still study 8 to 10, 12 hours per sermon. I, just, I love studying. I love digging. I love finding things out. I love searching the scriptures. I love digging into what it's going to say. Amen. And when I do that and I equip people and I train people and I teach people and I pray and I minister in the word, I'm most effective. So devotion to daily prayer, ministering the word is just that. It's daily. It's not just Sundays and weekends. You know, some people have joked, man, pastors got it easy. They work once on Sunday and once on Wednesday and got the rest of the week off. <laughs> Come hang out with me for a week. You'll see that's not true. Amen. Give biblical counsel all the time. Teach Bible studies all the time. In my home, Starbucks, wherever I can meet people. And I still take out the trash, vacuum floors, and so on and so forth. I'm not saying any of that to brag. I'm just saying that's what I do. Their decision to appoint seven qualified men satisfied the complaint. It also encouraged more efficient focus on maintaining growth and helped to return the focus to multiplied increase. The saying pleased the whole multitude. And that led into more disciples being multiplied, great company of priests you know, uh, converting to the faith and, and God's word continuing. Here's why. Because they heard, understood, validated, now multiplied increase could continue. It was a spirit-led decision to advocate this solution, and now more people would get involved. Satan's plan to distract and destroy was foiled, and God confirmed his word with signs following. That's a win-win in my book. The decision of the apostles also fulfilled the desire for others to be empowered to serve. Empowerment is sharing some of your authority with someone else, trusting their ability to lead. 
You can ask Pastor Lucas. You can ask Kiara about uh, her husband, Jeremy. You can ask, uh, you know, Trevor. You can ask any of them uh, that are here tonight. I don't look at their notes. I don't, I don't approve. I, I trust that when they get in this pulpit, they've prayed. They've sought the will of God. They've sought the mind of God. And they're going to preach the word of God. Not themselves, the word of God. I've pointed people to, to any one of the pastoral team members and said, why don't you go talk to them and, and let them give you wise counsel and trusted their judgment in that counsel. I'm the chairman of the finance team, but I don't even have a vote. Go figure. I let the trustees vote. Why? Because I want others to lead and serve. I want others to, to have a part of the process. Does that make sense? It's empowerment. It's trusting others to lead. You know what? There are times that I think, you know, if you did it this way, it'd be easier. And sometimes I'm right, but I keep the thoughts to myself because if that person does it that way and they learn from it, it's, it's much better for them. I don't want a carbon copy. There's, trust me, Myron T. Powell, one of me is enough. I get it. And I know some of you are thinking, amen. Well, amen. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I agree. I, I, there, we don't need carbon copies of me. Pastor Lucas, the greatest lesson I learned from, from Pastor Kenny was when I was 16 years old. He looked across the desk at me and he said, whoever you're mocking, whoever you're imitating, we already have one of him. Just be the best Myron Powell God's called you to be. And I say that to others that I lead. I share that story with them. I don't want them to be me. I want them to be who God's called them to be. Trusting others to serve and lead is the hallmark of Christ. Have you ever really stopped to consider the group of people he chose? Fishermen? Tax collectors? Zealots? I mean, come on. What a motley crew. If the local church is to experience multiplied increase, others must be empowered to serve and lead. And when others are empowered, a sense of fulfillment to the kingdom will awaken in them. And it will spread through the church like warm butter on a hot roll at Texas Roadhouse. Wow. Well, hallelujah. Jesus chose and taught these disciples, and not just the 12 apostles, but others too. He would model for them. They were with him when he preached and healed. And then all of a sudden he got them together and he says, I'm sending you out now to do the same. And when they come back and they shared with him, he was like, okay. Great. I, I know Satan is, is subject to your name and, and all the demons, but don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that I've written your name in the Lamb's book of life. I saw Satan fall from heaven. That's nothing. He corrected. He helped them. Right? What? Master, why couldn't we heal the man? Well, you had some small faith there, and you need to fast and pray a little bit. He would, he would help them. Okay? That's model mentor. He, he led. He equipped. Paul, educated, equipped, and empowered many in his lifetime. Timothy and Titus are, are probably two of the, the most known because, of course, the book's written to them. But, uh, you know, he also told them to do the same. He told Titus, ordain elders in every city. He told Timothy uh, to, to commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. In other words, don't just stop with you. Here, here's the thing. Have you ever heard that statement? This, that somebody says, that person is irreplaceable. If that's true, it stops with them. I remember growing up and, and enjoying football, and you know, Joe Montana was the rage. 
in, in, in my early years, in, in, in my teen years, starting to come into that, you know. And, and to his credit, he's got four Super Bowl titles and I think three MVPs and, you know, great guy, right? Well, now he has been surpassed by a Tom Brady who has seven Super Bowls in his, in his career. But now it's potentially possible that Patrick Mahomes may surpass that because he's only 28 and he's already got three Super Bowls. And if he works the same amount of time as Tom Brady. In other words, the point is this. Records are meant to be broken. We understand that when it comes to you know, uh, uh, the Olympics or, or to any other sport or whatever. But in the church, there's a similar pattern in that it doesn't stop with us. It's supposed to get better. Let me, let me just say something. I'm getting older. I'm 51 now, so I'm, I'm, I'm moving more in the elder category. Let me say, speak to my fellow elders tonight and those even older than me. Let's be careful not to say, well, the good old days. No, our best days are now and still yet ahead of us. I want my children and one day my grandchildren to have a greater experience than me. I want my ceiling to be their ground floor. That's empowerment. Praise God. Let me ask you this. If, if yesteryear was better, how far back do we stop? Was, was it 1907? Was it 1852? Was it all the way to the upper room? I mean, how far back do we go? Be careful with that mindset. Yeah, I like some of the old songs. But I like some of the new ones too. They're, they're not songs I grew up with, but guess what? They're songs this generation's growing up with. Praise the Lord. Besides, that means when I sing an old one, people think it's new. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a cool thing, you know? And, and, and I kind of like what they're doing with some of the songs. They'll bring out a little old element here to a song and then bring in a new uh, way to sound. Whoa, that's kind of cool. We've got a couple fast ones we do that way with our praise team. A couple slow ones. I love it. Praise God. Well, amen. John Maxwell said it this way, a leader's success can be defined as the maximum utilization of the abilities of those under him. Tony Dungy explains mentorship and, and empowerment this way. He said, those we lead will be more receptive if they believe we genuinely want them to succeed. Jesus best exemplified the value of empowering others, revealing the primary concern was building and adding value to their lives. Therefore, when you invest in others, the dividends are eternal. So, they addressed a concern, they advocated a solution, and number three, they authorized servant leaders. Verses five and six, or the latter part of verse five. They chose Stephen and all these other men. So these seven men are now selected with three main requirements. They have to have an honest report. This means good reputation and proven servanthood. That's a good quality. I think that, that aligns with even some of our own core values and mission at the Church of Omaha. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Again, another great quality. Let me put a plug in for first steps. If you want to know more about our church, you want to get involved, see Sister Kiara tonight. Get signed up. You want to volunteer, talk to her or her husband, amen, Pastor Jeremy, and, and get connected, get involved, full of the Holy Spirit. By the way, this man, it wasn't just a one-time experience. 
but an ongoing remaining full of the Holy Spirit. This bottle is fairly full, but by the time I'm done preaching, I'm going to drink this thing down. It'll be empty. You understand what I mean? Being full is staying full, praying in the Holy Ghost, and then full of wisdom. This meant, of course, specifically in spiritual matters, not simply human wisdom or knowledge. So this wasn't, you've got to have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. It was more wisdom and understanding of the Word of God. These seven men were nominated, you might say, by the congregation, anointed by the fivefold ministry, so it became a team effort. And that seven were chosen could indicate that each one of them took a different day of the week. There's seven days of the week, seven men. It's possible they might have selected seven so that this one's on Sunday, this one's on Monday, and so forth and so on in the leading and the distribu uh, distribution to these Grecian windows. Widows, excuse me, not windows. <laughs> Hallelujah. Stephen, he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We know a lot about him because he goes on to preach and, of course, unfortunately becomes the first martyr in the book of Acts. His name means crowned, which is interesting because, again, being the first martyr, uh, he got that crown of glory. Philip, we know a lot about him. This is the same Philip who would preach to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, and Acts 21 would call him as well an evangelist. Procurius, we don't know a whole lot about him, but his name does mean leader of the chorus. So it's possible he was musically inclined. It's possible he may have also been a worship minister or worship leader of sorts as well. His name also indicates dancing, so maybe he was like David and danced before the Lord. Nicanor means a conqueror, Timon means honorable, Parmenas means abiding, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, means victor of the people. And so we don't know a lot about some of these other men, but we do know they were chosen. And we also know something else that's interesting, but uh, I want to just kind of whet your appetite for what's about to come about these seven men. But while you're thinking on that and getting ready to uh, hear what I'm going to say on that, there's an anonymous poem that I want to read to you, uh, written by an anonymous person, rather, um, that helps us to discover the type of person we need to be when God calls us. The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be the best. The master passed on with no word at all. He looked at a silver urn, narrow and tall. I'll serve you, dear master. I'll pour out your wine, and I'll be at your table whenever you dine. My lines are so graceful, my carving so true, and my silver will always compliment you. Unheeding, the master passed on to the brass. It was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Hear, hear, cried the vessel. I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my contents so dear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride. And I'm sure I'll be happy in your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, polished and carved, it solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bowl said, but I'd rather you use me for fruit and not just for bread. Then the master looked down 
and saw a vessel of clay, empty, broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had this vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and make whole, to fill, to use. Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I'll mend it and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one who is narrow and sets on a shelf, nor the one who's big mouthed and shallow and loud, nor the one who displays its content so proud. Not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but rather this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay, mended it and cleansed it and filled it that day and spoke to it kindly. There's work you must do. Just pour out to others what I pour into you. These seven men were like that. Now, for the sneak preview I kind of announced a minute ago. We know this about the etymology of their names. They're all Greek names. You know what that means? This indicated another aspect of this Grecian widow complaint. The sensitivity shown by the apostles to the Hellenists by appointing other Hellenists, the seven Greek believers, to serve showed that there would be no division. It immediately stopped any potential thought about racial injustice. These Hebrews that are mentioned here and, and the Hebrews were the Jews who were in Judea who were more inclined to embrace everything of Hebrew culture. They spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. They still loved the temple, even though Christ had fulfilled all of it. Even though they knew the prophecies that it would be torn down, all of that. They still loved it. They still practiced Passover. They still practiced all the things, even though they loved Jesus Christ and were born again. The Hellenists, on the other hand, were those Jews less inclined to accept Jewish culture, including all of the piety and the temple and other things that they did not have in their cities. And both of them were Jews. That was the bizarre part. They were both Jews. It would be like two gangs of equal ethnicity, but one on the west side and one on the east side fighting each other. It's like, you guys belong to the same group of people. Even though one was Hellenist and one was Hebrew, there was a lot of infighting. But when he appoints, he, Jesus, of course the apostles, when they appoint these seven Greek men, it automatically cuts the legs off of the thought that this could be some sort of racial injustice. We're going to trust these seven men to lead and to serve. The Hebrews, by the way, outnumbered the Hellenists. So for the apostles to appoint and anoint seven Hellenists spoke of their true integrity as well. And it still does today. They chose to look beyond labels to see seven leaders who could serve God's church. Let me just give a little sidebar here for a minute. If prejudice is in your heart, you're not ready to go to heaven. In Revelation 7, 
verses 9 and 10, we see that heaven is going to be a massive multitude, innumerable host of all languages, people, tongue, and nations. In his book, Don't Hold Back, David Platt wrote, The disciples started the church where the difference among new disciples only multiplied. They were women and men, rich and poor, young and old, slave and free, Hebrew and Hellenist. Gentiles started joining in droves, and Jesus, excuse me, and Jews hated Gentiles. Yet once Jewish disciples truly met Jesus, everything changed. Paul, an ethnic Jew by his own admission, a Pharisee of Pharisees, spent his life loving and sacrificing for people he once abhorred. In the end, ethnic Jews, wealthy Romans, and impoverished Gentiles from all kinds of pagan backgrounds were joined together in the family of God. And so when they laid their hands on them, this represented God's spiritual anointing. Still to this day, when the leadership anoints someone and lays hands, it's the equivalent of pouring oil on Aaron's head or a priest or a king. It has that kind of symbolism and significance. But it also signified this. It signified trust in their capacity to fulfill the task. It signifies God, God's anointing to guide and to give them wisdom and strength and a confirmation of the people accepting God's solution. And because of all this, the mission was accelerated. Verse 7, and the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. By the way, the priests here would have been the Levites, would have been those of Jewish uh, descent. One definition of accelerating is to gain momentum. Momentum was gained because of what the apostles in the church did. The Hellenists did the right thing. They made their need known and they trusted the solution to the apostles. The Hebrews did the right thing. They recognized the Hellenists had a legitimate need and also trusted the solution of the apostles. The seven chosen men did the right thing, accepting the call to what, again, David Guzik calls unglamorous service. They weren't put into the service to be on the platform, so to speak. They were put in to oversee the ministration to widows. And finally, the apostles did the right thing. They responded to the need. They listened to understand. They validated everyone involved. They provided a spirit-led solution and did not distract themselves or the church from God's purpose for multiplied increase. And because of all this, Satan's strategy failed. He was unable to distract and divide and destroy the church. More disciples began to come in. A great company of priests converted. And although Satan would try again, and is still trying to this very day, the book of Acts ends like this. 
Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching these things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. That phrase, no man forbidding him, means unstoppable. And I've come to tell you that the multiplied increase of the church, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the kingdom of God is still unstoppable today. Hallelujah. As we wrap this up, let me say this. If you go to the Old Testament, you read uh, in Psalm 78, you'll find that it says that they limited the Holy One of Israel. This is a reference to them in Israel as they came into the uh, uh, wilderness, as they came out of Egypt. God can't be limited in that sense, but it, the idea is that their doubt limited Him. It, it, it stalled His plan for 40 years. In other words, let me say it this way, it took God 10 plagues to get them out of Egypt, but it took Him 40 years to get Egypt out of them. In that case, the murmuring and the complaining, they didn't like the solutions. God fed them manna, they wanted quail. God gave them quail, it was too much. They complained, they murmured at every turn. We had it better in Egypt. Really? You get beet, you had onions, that's all you got, leets and onions, and you got, you got whipped and beat. Okay, you had it better? Okay, wow. They had an Egypt mentality, but in this case, we see a completely different scenario. We see a, two factions of people that could have come up against each other, because if you study other areas, and, and you study history about the Hebrews and the Hellenists, they hated each other. And it would come sometimes to fisticuffs. But in this case, it didn't happen. And God's purpose continued. And so let me say this. As we work together, I want to see multiplied increase. I will do my best to listen to understand and validate you. I'm asking you to do your best that if you bring a concern, trust the Spirit-led solution. And let's work together for the kingdom of God. What do you say? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Praise God. By the way, that is just as essential as believing in the oneness. Because let me say it this way. Some people believe what I taught in January, but they're not growing. And God's purpose is for church growth to continue. Now, it's up to Him. We plant, we water, He gives the increase. We can't make the church grow. I mean, I suppose we could. We could, you know, relax the standards and we could, you know, quit preaching the truth and, you know, serve liquor and maybe we might get more people. I don't know. We could try, try that, but... <clears throat> oh, that was a joke, by the way. A bad one, but it was a joke. But you, you see what I'm saying? We can't make the church grow. But what we can do is not just believe those essential elements, but also believe that God has intended for us to grow. Here's what else that means. That means when somebody comes in and sets in the seat that you typically sit in, it's not yours. Okay? So help me. If you get angry at somebody for sitting in the seat you normally sit in, I will be kind, but I will be firm. And I will let you know how foolish that is. Okay? Let's grow together. Let's see God do great things. In Jesus' name. Lord.
Help all of us to take this message to heart tonight, to serve you faithfully, to do your will, and to see multiplied increase in your church. In Jesus' mighty name. God bless you. I love you. It's an honor to be your pastor. Hallelujah. Men, if I could get some help.